Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So my next interview is with Tom Powers. He loves film. He particularly loves documentary film. In fact, he's the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival. He's the artistic director of, uh, of I think, America's largest documentary festival, Doc NYC. He's a host of a podcast called Pure Nonfiction. And we get into, uh, basically, we get into the Toronto International Film Festival and, and uh, documentary film and its implications from a, you know, from a storytelling perspective. We talk about some of our faves and Tom talks about things that are connected to, to journalism and, and, and documentary as, as an art form and, and why Toronto is, is uh, such a spe- special place. We talk about some of the odds that, that filmmakers are up against and about the social and political side and, and about the, I guess you could almost say that, that responsibility that is connected to anyone who's telling uh, an important story of one kind or another and why Tom notes why we shouldn't take these things for granted. We talk about one of the longer films I've ever heard of before, a 14-hour film that's uh, going to be at the festival where 183 women directors are highlighted in one way or another. And Tom talks about uh, not not just that film, but he talks about one of the 25, I believe at this point, 25 films that are going to be showcased this year, uh, documentary pieces, and about 18, I think, uh, world premieres. We talk about... Uh, Tom's favorite film. I'll let you find out what that is and why it was such a game changer for him. And um, and how the documentary scene and the documentary world has really grown over the past few years and how, you know, uh, this kind of storytelling is connected to social change and, and, and shifting the conversation. And we talk about Roger Ebert's great line about why uh, this uh, that film is a, a machine uh, for producing empathy. So stay tuned. Coming right up, Tom Powers. Don't forget davidpecklive.com for more information about my writing and speaking. You can purchase a copy of Real Changes Incremental there. If you'd like to support what we're doing here at Face to Face and you believe in uh, the podcast and, and the people that we're interviewing, please um, please support us. You can do that on Patreon. 
on a monthly basis financially, or you could just simply leave us a, a, a review on iTunes or Spotify or something along those lines. We would certainly appreciate it. It'd be a great deal of help as it we grow and, and uh, we're getting out there into the real world. And if you want to advertise uh, with us, you can do that too. Simple banner ad in the newsletter. In fact, sign up for the newsletter. Share it with your friends. Let's grow this thing called Face to Face. And uh, we can also do shout-outs. So reach out to us if you'd like to advertise with us as our audience grows. And uh, I guess the last thing I'd like to to talk about briefly is Rabble.ca. It's a platform where face-to-face is hosted, and a big shout-out to them. And this is news for the rest of us. This is where other podcasters and thinkers and writers and journalists are going just a little bit deeper on the issues that matter. Coming right up, Tom Powers and the Toronto International Film Festival. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We're joined by a very special guest here with us today, Tom Powers. Uh, Well, we don't know where he's calling in from, but somewhere, I'm going to guess, in North America. Tom's with us here today to talk about documentary film and podcasting and narrative and the Toronto International Film Festival. Tom, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. So why don't we why don't we start a little bit a little bit with your 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 filmic background your your bio is you're a documentary programmer for for the Toronto International Film Festival artistic director for Doc uh, NYC and uh, and you host uh, your own podcast very popular podcast pure nonfiction tell us a little bit about your eclectic background before we dive into all things documentary sure uh, you know I spent ten years making documentaries myself as director and producer for HBO and. PBS and other places out of New York City. And after doing that for 10 years, I realized that my favorite part of making a documentary film was uh, showing it to an audience. And I wanted to create more opportunities for doing that. And I started a series in New York at the IFC Center movie theater called Stranger Than Fiction in 2005, when where I would show documentary films followed by a conversation uh, with the filmmaker. And that had uh, some quick popularity and and success. And the next year I got hired by the Toronto Film Festival uh, to be its documentary programmer. And then in 2010, my wife, Raphaela Nehausen and I uh, started the Doc NYC Festival with IFC Center. So that's now going into its 10th year uh, this November and has grown to be the largest documentary festival in the United States. Wow, that's uh, that's amazing. And, and, and congratulations. I love I love the step into public engagement. Is that a fair way to put it? So you go from practicing from from making films to actually getting other people to see them engage and, and, and talk about them. I think that's fascinating and seems like a natural progression, but, but did it feel like it at the time? Um, good question. I mean, it's not a, it's not a common progression. I think, you know, a lot of people who put in 10 years into making a career as a documentary filmmaker, uh, usually stay there, um, or, or perhaps they move on to, uh, something else. I mean, I think for many, uh, uh, people I know who got into making documentary films in the 1990s, and that was a kind of natural entry point because uh, technology was changing, cameras are becoming more accessible, digital editing tools were uh, becoming cheaper and more accessible. So there was a whole wave of uh, of us who entered in the 1990s, and and I would say by 10 years later, 
you know, I saw a certain amount of shakeout of, uh, you know, people who moved on to something else. Uh, and a big part of it is that, you know, the economics are very daunting for making a documentary f- film. Um, they were then, they are now. Uh, maybe it's gotten a little bit better today, but I would never say it's an easy road to hoe. Why, why, I mean, I think there's some pretty uh, sort of superficial reasons as to why it's so difficult to make film, period, but to make doc film particularly. Like, on one hand, it's really easy to make a doc. I mean, you know, you've got an S9 Plus or uh, saw a couple of a film a couple of years ago, I think High Fantasy, South African film, made completely on an iPhone, except for a few drone shots. So, so it's really accessible sort of from a storytelling perspective and a journalistic perspective. But to get to the festival to get it on stage to get it live i mean there's so many hurdles and 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 corners and funding issues and like shouldn't it be easier tom well i i guess i'm not sure how to answer that uh you know i'm i'm always looking to increase opportunities to connect documentary films mm. to audiences i'm always looking for ways to uh help documentary filmmakers find um more ways to make their career sustainable. Um, but I, you know, does the world owe a documentary filmmaker uh, a living? You know, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm not sure, you know, any more yeah. than anyone uh, deserves to uh, make a living at their passion. Yeah, no, it's just, it, it, and, and what's interesting to me too is, you know, in light of what you've said about, you know, the challenges and, and so on of, 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 I mean, I think of just creating art and then, living, uh, you know, a sustainable life. I was interviewing um, an organization here in, in Canada recently about a new report coming out in the cultural and the arts sector. And, you know, the average wage uh, is around $42,000 a year. You know, there's close to 300,000 people working in this sector, and that could be admin folk, and it could be artists themselves and so on. But still, what bubbles to the surface are these challenges, right? That, that it's not just about the art, it's about trying to make a living while creating the art. Yeah, I mean, I think I come at it from a, a different perspective as I have an opportunity to travel to other countries. In the last few years, I, I got to go to a documentary film festival in Iran. Uh, earlier this year, I was in China um, at, a, at a documentary film conference. Uh, so, you know, I've seen filmmakers who are among are up against much greater odds, mm. um, not only with funding, but uh, in uh, with uh, in, in countries where freedom of speech isn't as robust right. as it is in uh, in North America. So, um, so you know, from from the standpoint of making documentary films in North America, I, I take a glass half full approach. There, there really are some risks. I, I was recently in Southeast Asia, in, in Cambodia, and there was a film that had come out, it was in the press, had come out about human trafficking, have no idea uh, about the film Russian, and a local Khmer translator ended up being jailed for up to two years. Now, he may get out sooner than that, but for, for even stepping into the project in the first place. So, I mean, this is a reality for, for many people uh, around the world. That, that is absolutely true. So what, what about those risks? Do you have, uh, having been a filmmaker, now you're, you know, you're a programmer, you're interviewing, you're, you're putting on events. Um, 
Would you have a, would you say you have a high level? I remember when I finished my university degree, one of the things I said to many people I met was my, you know, my level of respect went up for anyone who sort of made it, uh, you know, to graduating. Would, would you say there's a, there's a kind of person that's drawn to this type of storytelling and, and uh, can, can you talk about that level of commitment and passion a bit? Yeah, I th- it'd be hard to reduce documentary filmmakers to one character type because uh, there are many different ways of pursuing this. Um, but I think about some of the films that we have coming to the Toronto Film Festival this year. The film that we've chosen is the opening night selection for the documentaries is called The Cave by the Syrian filmmaker Faraz Fayad. Uh, he previously made Last Men in Aleppo that was nominated for an Academy Award a couple of years ago and right. and you know and put his life at risk um, filming in Syria. And so it's rather extraordinary that he uh, you know decided to go back to right. uh, uh, to make this new film, The Cave. So the the cave is about a underground hospital um, uh, constructed out of tunnels um, uh, led by women doctors and for us filmed there for almost uh, two years. Um, and one thing I would say about this film is we, you know, we think of a lot of Syria documentaries as being made from cell phone footage or kind of grainy. Um, uh, this is made at a very high level of cinematic uh, quality. Um, and uh, and has, um, you know, it's definitely about what's happening in Syria today, but I think it has uh, a more universal quality. Um, there, it feels like you're almost watching a hmm. you know, post-apocalyptic science fiction movie of these people living underground. It could come from, you know, a, a Mad Max film. Um and uh, and and that really elevates it. So th- there's an example of one kind of filmmaker for Ayad, sure. uh, who is you know d- d- driven by love of his country, Syria, to uh, document the seemingly never-ending war there. Um, you know, another filmmaker with uh, who practices this differently is Alan Berliner, uh, who has a film this year called Letter to the Editor which is a essay film uh, made out of um, newspaper archives that he's collected over the last 40 years. And Alan Berliner, who's been doing this for several decades, making essayistic films, I think really practices documentary like an artist. He, he went to art school. He, he didn't come out of journalism school. Um, and so you know, there's uh, an example of a, you know, well, there's two examples of, of, filmmakers approaching this form from from different places do you think there's um do you think there's genres i mean there, there are genres aren't there of, of doc filmmaking sure i mean that i think you know as curators or journalists we can't help ourselves but uh, uh categorize films sure. um and just like if you wander into the nonfiction section of a bookstore and you'll right. find you know, biographies and films about music or books about music and books about sports. Um, you know, we see the same thing in, uh, in documentary film. 
Uh, and, and I think that's become more noticeable in the last 20 years uh, as documentaries have pro- proliferated, um, you know, not only in movie theaters, but on television and digital platforms like uh, Netflix and Amazon. Do you think that's a good thing, uh, uh, Tom, in a sense? I mean, and it's, you know, it's, it's way more nuanced than good, bad, but this, this renewed interest, I mean, you think of, um, you know, uh, uh, Michael Moore's, the popularity, the money made, you know, a few, a few of the docs in the last couple, uh, last couple of years, some of the Oscar nominated uh, pieces have, have done really well. And, and I hear, I mean, I, I had a chiropractor visit just the other day. Oh, have you seen this doc film recently? And, and I just, it kind of buoyed my spirits in a way that, that it seems like people are wanting to go a little deeper. Is that, is that, uh, is that fair? Do you, are you getting that same sense or are your, are your theaters full at your, uh, you know, your festivals that you're, you're, you're at and hosting over, over the last few years? Uh, very much so. And, you know, that's, I, I remember in my second or third year, uh, at the Toronto Film Festival, we used to have, uh, like a marketing piece that we did. We did a little brochure just for the documentaries. And after the second or third year, I was told that, that we weren't going to do that anymore because the documentaries were selling just, <laughs> just nice. fine without, uh, this why brochure. waste the money? Yeah. So, um, so, I think Toronto is a kind of special place because it's so well served um, with a with a documentary loving audience, uh, not only for TIFF but for Hot Docs and uh, and many other festivals that uh, that take place there. Um, I, you know, I have different experiences in other places. I program. I program at the Miami Film Festival and have been doing so for ten years. And um, and you know, and there it's a little different. You can't. Uh, you can't expect that audiences are going to come in to watch a documentary. We, you know, we have to work a little harder uh, for it. Um, but to get back to what you were describing, the you know, the conversation with your chiropractor. I think you know all of us who are in the documentary space, uh, or not even, or not even in the documentary space, have experiences like that. For those of us who've been um, in this space for a while and can remember uh, a time when documentary was uh, was not a popular label, was not mm. so, something you wanted to uh, lean forward with because it sounded, it had a reputation of, um, of, of you know, being like going to school and the worst right. part of going right. to school. Um, th- uh, I-, I think for those of us who remember those days, you know, it's constantly surprising to find out now, to be reminded now, that documentary film is really at the center of the culture. Um, it is the thing that you're most likely to talk about at a dinner party full of strangers. It, it, do you think there's a way to, oh man, so many questions. I love this, the, the, this the, where, where these conversations go. I, I, I would imagine you feel the same way. Um, Tom doing, you know, interviews live on stage and so on and podcasts, but would you say there's a, um, because of the rise of social media and the sort of instant access to the journalist and all of us, I suppose, or the, 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 um, you know, the photographer and all of us, I, I, all of us, I, I remember reading a piece recently when Wenders said, you know, it's the death of the photograph. It's the death of the image because of the, you know, the S9, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
would you agree with that? Or do you think it's because of the access maybe that there's this renewed interest in, 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 in being the immediacy of storytelling, almost like these mini docs in a sense? Well, I mean, I think the technology is has a positive side and a negative side to it. Yeah, mm. I, I think it's wonderful that people can uh, take photographs or video um, and you know post them instantaneously. I mean, there's a um, there's a social and political side to that. I mean, just think of all the videos that have been posted over in, in recent years of police shootings or, right. uh, um, you know, actions that took place during the Arab Spring or they're taking place in Hong Kong uh, right now as we speak uh, and the power of uh, video to uh, capture that and document it. Um, you know, that's incredible. Uh, and, and, and it's a tool that we shouldn't take for granted because right. there, uh, you know, there are, people who uh, suffered things 20 years ago and more who would have loved to have had uh, a, a camera in their pocket to, uh, to document that. So that's the positive side. I think, uh, you know, the negative side, maybe what Vim Benders is getting at in that quote is we start to take images for granted more. They don't feel as special. They're, mm. we, we consume um, you know, an astronomical, you know, greater number of images, uh, every day than, uh, than we used to. Um, and so the attention to artistry, um, uh, perhaps declines. Um, I don't know, you know, for anyone who's interested in, in thinking about this, I go back to Alan Berliner's film letter to the editor mm. and it's coming to, to TIFF because it's really an essay meditation about photojournalism. Mm, um, he, uh, Alan Berliner for the last 40 years has spent every day clipping out photographs from the newspaper that struck him and he's maintained this incredible archive and that's what he's drawing from in, in letter to the editor. So good. Hey, just let's, let's do that, that, that uh, TIFF uh, like shout out. It's, it's, it's 20, it's 25 films this year, I believe. And, uh, and 18, is it 18 world premieres? Uh, that's right. In the, in the TIFF docs uh, section, uh, um, which of course exists inside the much larger uh, film festival where, where there's probably something like over 250 films showing, but in the TIFF docs section specifically, there are 25 documentaries uh, that we've announced so far. Um, always a chance for a latecomer right. this weekend. Um, and 18 of them are world premieres. Any, any uh, other than the few that you've mentioned, any, any real uh, special ones you're, you're looking forward to um, that you think are going to hmm, stir it up just a wee bit? Yeah, I mean, films that I think we'll be uh, talking about um, you know, in months to come, uh, would there's a film that's going to be coming to Netflix uh, called Bikram Yogi Guru Predator um, about the leader of the Bikram Yoga uh, movement um, who had a tremendous rise and then fall amongst allegations of uh, sexual uh, harassment hmm. um, and worse. Uh, so that of the filmmaker Eva Orner who has worked many years for Alex Gibney. She was uh, 
won an Oscar for producing her the film Taxi the Dark Side with Alex Gibney. Um, she's done a tremendous job uh, digging into um, the world of uh, of Bikram Yoga in this in this film called Bikram. Um, a uh, another film uh, on the kind of lighter side is a film called Dads um, by Bryce Dallas Howard. She's an actress and the daughter of Ron Howard. And in this film, Dads, um, she's interviewing uh, many people about fatherhood, including mm. her own father, Ron Howard, uh, also in- including several comedians like Will Smith and Jimmy Fallon and Conan O'Brien. Uh, who uh, bring a lot of humor yeah, and sounds, insight sounds and, and poignancy uh, to that film, Dads. And um, and then I'll just mention one more um, because it's the longest film in the section at, uh, at 14 hours long. It's called uh, Women Make Film, a new road movie through cinema. Uh, this comes from the uh, filmmaker and film historian Mark Cousins, uh, along with his longtime collaborator, Tilda Swinton, who's the executive producer on this. So in uh, Women Make Film, Mark is, uh, is, uh, is, has, has gone around the world uh, looking in film archives for uh, films directed by women, many of which have gone overlooked uh, over the years. And across these 14 hours, um, he's selected clips from, uh, he's selected 700 clips, oh. over 700 clips, uh, by films from 183 women directors. Um, and I don't care how big a cinephile you are, uh, you're going to be learning, um, <laughs> about directors you've never heard from, uh, before. So at, uh, the, the, the total length is, um, is 14 hours, but, at TIFF, we're going to be showing it in five different parts of okay. two to three hours. And you don't need to feel committed to watching all 14 hours. I think, you know, even if you just get to watch one section of it, and it could be any section of it, you don't lose anything if you uh, wind up seeing a middle section of it or or the end section of it or the first section of it. Um, you'll you'll have a lot to take away from, from any section you watch. Of, it's of a whole, that's a whole lot of popcorn, Tom. That's right. That's right. 14 hours. Yeah. So yeah, sounds like an important film. Do you, do you ever make the distinction uh, in doc or maybe just in film in general between sort of a great and, and an important film? Um, sometimes I, I mean, I, I love doc. I, I think if it's, a, a, um, if it's well done, whatever that means, I can watch a doc about pretty much anything. Yeah. I, look, I, there are many different approaches to documentary films. I think there are films that are widely accessible, like the film Dads that I was talking about before, and there are films that are more demanding of uh, of a film goer in different ways. Um, I mean, it, in some ways, the women make film is demanding in its length of fourteen hours, but I also think widely accessible, and that you could sit down and watch any hour of it, and you know, don't have to be an expert in anything to uh, to enjoy it. Um, so when, when I'm curating at TIFF, you know, I'm looking for uh, a mix of things. I'm looking for a mix of international stories. I'm looking for a mix of things that, um, that b- between things that, you know, I think could be very popular and things mm-hmm. that are more challenging. 
Have you have you noticed a shift in, in style? And I think I think the the question is going to be kind of I'd love to bookend it with with you know some of your favorites over the years, some of the game changing like documentaries that that have occurred that have changed the way people think, that changed the way people make docs. Maybe, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Just just wondering about that, and I don't know. Maybe can, can you can you wrap into that some of your faves? I mean, for me, Night and Fog probably is up there. Um, you know, probably because it was one of the first, for me, one of those first um, hmm, thirty-minute film, and I and I and I kind of came away wondering and asking deeper questions. And I'm not sure that had ever really happened for me mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. I mean, probably everyone has, uh, you know, a film like that that mm-hmm. uh, uh, that stay with them. Uh, for me, <clears throat> it would have been. Uh, a film by Marcelo Fools, Hotel Terminus, The Life and Times of Klaus Barbie, uh, that I saw as a teenager in uh, in the 1980s when it came out, and uh, and in in that film, Marcelo Fools is looking at the Nazi war criminal Klaus Barbie who had escaped justice uh, for many years, and uh, and from the perspective of the 1980s, uh, you know, historians had um, had recognized that one of the reasons Klaus Barbie had escaped justice is uh, is because uh, under the Cold War politics, um, the CIA and other organizations had kind of let some Nazis go because they didn't want uh, them uh, uh, going over to the side of uh, of the Soviet Union um, and uh, were you know afraid of uh, of knowledge that they would take with them. Uh, uh, into the Soviet Union, so they let them escape other places. Uh, so that that was a um, kind of stunning film for me to to watch because it it reinterpreted uh, history mm-hmm. in a way that I hadn't seen before, and also showed the, showed me the power of a, of a filmmaker like Marcelo Fools to um, to go out into the world to conduct interviews that uh that reframed um history uh in that way um so it 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 showed me that you didn't need to be a big uh news organization like you know the new york times or cbs news that you could do this um as an individual there's some there's something very very um well it's accessible for sure but something very democratic about that it seems to me Yes, absolutely, and and I think that the democratizing of uh, of documentary film has grown even more so uh, with the technology that we've been talking about. Was it? Do you think when you reflect back on it, I would imagine pretty fond uh, memories. I'm sure you've seen it since. Hmm. Was it? Was it? In, was it an intuitive thing? Like, did you feel? Uh, and I know this might sound kind of corny, but but I mean, I I find film to be incredibly emotional, and I I will step out of a film or, or watch a film and 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 immediately think I I need to share this with others. I want to share this with others, and I just hope they're going to feel the same way too. <laughs> and most of the time, that doesn't happen. It seems for me. Uh, pretty frustrating, but yeah, just just wondering, is it? Is you know, does it? Is it? Is it, what? How many levels, right, is a great film working on? It's quite a few, it seems to me. Well, look, that's a real privilege of the job I have mm. in Toronto. I've just spent the summer watching several hundred films <laughs> and, wow. you know, wow. 
picking out a couple yeah. dozen that I'm looking forward to sharing with people uh, in early September, and uh, and you know, in the last 14 years that I've been doing this, um, it's been enormously gratifying to see an audience, um, you know, react to uh, a film that you know that I saw alone in my office and uh, and and see that wave take place at uh, at Toronto. I mean, last year, you know, that film was Free Solo um, right. uh, by Chai Vassarelli and uh, Jimmy Chin, um, which, you know, I'd seen by myself in a screening room in New York City and then uh, and, and watched it with sweaty palms and white knuckles uh, for... Uh, all the suspense in that film uh, that that chronicles El- the climber Alex and Olds um, uh, ascending El Capitan, the sheer rock cliff in Yosemite Park uh, without ropes. Uh, and then, you know, I got to see audiences in Toronto uh, watch with the same level of suspense that I had uh, seen it by myself. And uh, and I'm you know right now as you're talking to me a few weeks uh, before Toronto starts, I'm you know, I can't wait for audiences to, to be encountering some of those films that I've watched this summer in the same way. Nice. Um, is there a, um, would you say there's a direct link between doc film? And this is a big question, obviously some of the work that I do in international development, I've acted as a consultant alongside development projects around the world and, you know, kind of how I made my living for quite a few years and, and been able to travel and so on. And, and, you know, isn't it wonderful? Um, but, and, and seen aspects of, of sort of social change on a variety of levels and some things that work and some things that don't. Do you think that the power story, the power narrative is how we're going to change the conversation, whatever it's about, you know, whether it's racism or sexism or, I mean, it seems to me typically doc films are, you know, about substantive things, you know, like uh, Howard's film about dad sounds lovely and wonderful, but boy, there's going to be some, I would imagine some layers. Um, yeah. Just interested in what your thoughts there are, Tom, having been a filmmaker and interviewed so many over the years. Well, I mean, we, we do know that films can make, you know, very big changes. I think of uh, the film uh, The Act of Killing by Joshua Oppenheimer that uh, showed at Toronto uh, a few years ago um, about the genocide that took place in Indonesia um, in the 1960s and had largely been covered up in that country and, you know, scarcely reported in other parts of the world. And the, the fact of Joshua Oppenheimer's film coming out mm. changed that whole country's narrative right. uh, about itself and, um, and, and how the rest of the world understood that chapter of history. So th- th- that's a very dramatic uh, example. And sometimes I think, uh, there can be a cynical attitude towards documentaries. I've heard it expressed like, well, that film won't change anything. Right. Um, and preaching to the converted. Yes. And, you know, they, you know, people will say that about Michael Moore's film, uh, Fahrenheit 9-11 that came out in 2004 uh, during the reelection campaign of George Bush and, some people felt that maybe that film could have 
uh, tipped the election against George Bush because people were lining up around the block to see it. And it made over $100 million in the box office that was completely unprecedented for a documentary film. Uh, and it's only, in fact, you know, happened one other time in history. And uh, and when people look back on it, uh, you know, they'll say in a kind of disparaging way, well, that film didn't change anything. It didn't right. get George Bush, um, uh, you know, ousted from uh, from office. And and I think that's a kind of dumb metric to, uh, to hold <laughs> uh, a documentary film to, because we all know that films change our minds and our hearts uh, and open our eyes Mm. uh, 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 and our understanding of, uh, of different things on an individual level. uh, You know, Roger Ebert had the great expression of uh, calling film a machine that produces empathy. Right. And, you know, and that is the experience you see in a movie theater when people watch an watch a documentary is they come out of that, with a greater understanding and empathy for people on screen, people maybe they had no knowledge of uh, before. Um, so, you know, so that is change. Um, and sometimes that change, uh, you know, rolls into something else that's bigger and more tangible, like <clears throat> getting a law passed or uh, getting some initiative funded. Um, you know, those things, uh, you know, do happen quite a bit, I think, more than um, than uh, we give credit for. Um, uh, but I, I think that that's the that's a better metric to, to think about is how a film changes individuals. I um I think uh, uh, Tom I think we need to we need to find a writer and author who's going to write the book Dumb Metrics. Love the title. <laughs> Love the title. I think that would sell wildly uh, in in the business world. Um, Tom, I, I want this conversation to keep going. I, I, I wish we had an audience of, of 500 listening. Uh, I mean, we do. We have a digital audience, but but a live audience would be wonderful too. Hey, just as we wrap up, and and, and again, thank thanks for your time today. And 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 folks, I hope I hope you check Tom's uh, podcast out online. It's it's pure fiction, uh, pure nonfiction dot net. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So, so uh, silly question, but what would you say you're most excited about? I mean, we're we're a few weeks away from from TIFF. Uh, the craziness has begun. The emails are starting to fill up my inbox. I'm sure you're inundated. Uh, what 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 are you looking forward to the most? No, it's a great question, and I'd point to a film that I that might go under people's radar otherwise because it's a filmmaker who. Uh, isn't as well known as uh, some others, and it doesn't have, you know, a, it doesn't have Leonardo DiCaprio right. as an executive producer, or uh, you know, or Bruce Springsteen on screen uh, like other films do. Uh, but this is a film called Love Child by mm. the Danish uh, filmmaker Ava uh, Molvad, and she follows uh, a, an Iranian couple over six years. Um, as they are living in exile, um, trying to uh, gain refugee status. Um, The film begins in 2012 when they have fled Iran um, uh, under threat of uh, death. Um, And uh, and it was their bad luck to be escaping at a time when uh, Syria was... 
um, coming apart. And so uh, they're at the same time that they were trying to seek refugee status. So are thousands of uh, people fleeing the conflict in Syria. And uh, you really get an understanding for um, what it means to have your life caught up in uh, in the paperwork of mm. of refugee uh, bureaucracy. Um, but uh, this film that, as I said, takes place over six years time. It's also full of very many sweet moments and um, uh, and the the title Love Child um, really like reflects the power of love that is in this film and that holds this couple together and gets them through times of adversity. And uh, Ava Molvad, the director, has done just such an exquisite job with this. Uh, you know, that's for anyone going to uh, TIFF or looking out for films uh, that will be coming out of TIFF, I would tell them to look out for Love Child. Well, that's great. No, I, I was actually just reading about this morning and, and what a nice... Uh, a way to step into that that quote from Ebert about a machine that produces empathy. I mean, isn't this about stepping into the lives of others in, in a variety of ways? That's right. Tom, thanks so much for your time today. We've been talking with uh, Tom Tom Powers. You probably know who that is. He's the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival, artistic director at uh, um, Doc NYC, and, and he's also a host of uh, a popular podcast called Pure Nonfiction. Check him out online. And I'm coming soon to many theaters near you, uh, several hundred films at the Toronto International Fest, uh, Film Festival. Tom, thank you so much for your time today. I so appreciate it. Thank you. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.